15. There's so many reasons I think the contemporary American church needs to revisit strongly Acts chapter 15. Uh, This is the first Christian council, if you want to call it that. Uh, It has not been the last, but it was the first Christian gathering to determine, to settle an issue. And of course, in um, the earliest days of Christianity, uh, most all of us in the Christian faith, whether it's Protestant, Orthodox, or Roman Catholic, we preference uh, the first five or seven church councils. Um, there's, this is the only one that's recorded in Scripture, the one in Jerusalem. Uh, but of course, the ones that you may know about are like the Council of Nicaea that produced the Nicene Creed. 325, and then right after that, 381, the Council of Chalcedon, uh, which both Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon produced creeds, but those two councils worked on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So we have this history that's kind of the way uh, the Christian community, particularly in our earliest days, made decisions. Um, the, the, the leadership came together and they prayerfully discerned their way uh, to, to, to the answers that they needed. Uh, we call that theologically, and uh, I don't really hear this much outside of Methodist circles. By the way, we don't do it well. Some other people do it better than we do, and they call it different things. But at least I, I do hear, at least in my Methodist circles, because Wesley used this phrase, Christian conferencing as a means of grace, uh, like Holy Communion, reading Scripture, fasting, uh, prayer, Christian conferencing. Uh, Christian conferencing can be a means of grace. Now, Christian conferencing can just be a sharing of people's ignorance. Uh, you got to be careful with Christian conferencing. Uh, but Christian conferencing done as a means of grace, which I know that's what we're all after, you know, done prayerfully, done with people of some spiritual maturity. That's where you end up with the Council of Nicaea and the Nicene Creed, the Council of Chalcedon and, and the Chalcedonian Creed. Um, so Christian conferencing is what we call it, uh, is, um, can be a means of grace. And again, part of that, we see it happening here in the New Testament. Uh, you're going to see here this first Christian council. Uh, there was an issue. It was more of an issue in the city of Antioch. We keep talking about Antioch. Uh, Antioch, north of Jerusalem. That was the headquarters of Paul's missionary journeys. That's sort of where the center of the church shifted to after the persecution broke out after Stephen and the earliest Christians scattered out of Jerusalem. Uh, the next the next basic seat of Christian power was the city of Antioch uh, in what we would call northern Syria. Uh, So what you see in the book of Acts, as a result of what Paul and Barnabas have been doing, and Peter, as a result of what the Holy Spirit's been doing, uh, some issues arose. And those issues brought division to the church in Antioch. So what the people in Antioch do, Paul, Silas, Paul and Barnabas, they go to Jerusalem. They go really to headquarters. And they, they enter into a season of Christian conferencing. You'll see how it happens. You're going to get to watch it happening here in Acts 15. And they work themselves to a really important decision. So there's two basic reasons I wish the Christian community, particularly in the West and American and, and, and Western Europe, would revisit Acts 15, is both to relearn how Christian conferencing should be done, how Christian decision-making should be done. But also, I want you to notice the decision that came out of the Jerusalem Council, the Jerusalem Conference. Because particularly the decision that came out of the Jerusalem Conference, um, and it's it's in agreement, obviously, with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, It's obviously in agreement with what Paul goes forth to preach, and he does it strongly in places like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and all of his letters really to a certain extent, but to a great extent in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. So the decision that they actually reach uh, is, is, is worth our um, consideration again in, in, in the Western church. Uh, so look at the text, and you're going to see what the issue is. You're going to see how they resolve it how they resolve it, and you're going to see what the resolution is. So we'll spend two weeks in Acts 15. Uh, We're going to actually get through the 
conference this morning. And then in the second part of Acts 15 is when they distribute their decision to the wider Christian community. But uh, watch what's going on and watch how they resolve it and watch what the resolution is. So chapter 15, verse 1. Again, the background of this is all of Paul's missionary journey. He's been going all around um, the Mediterranean world into Gentile pagan regions, even though he starts with Jewish community if he can. Uh, he, he's bringing a lot of pagans into, the, into, the, into the, this new way of being Jewish. He's bringing a lot of um, non-Jews into um, uh, belief in uh, uh, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. So, and that's problematic. All these different people are bringing different ways of living uh, into this new fellowship that originally is a Jewish movement. So they have to figure out, in a sense, well, the basic question is what is essential for salvation? But then uh, another way of looking at what has caused the issue in Acts 15 is how Jewish do we have to be? How much of the Old Testament, how much of the law of Moses uh, do we have to continue carrying over into the Christian faith? Again, I do point out we kept the Hebrew Bible. We kept the Old Testament. So we, we kept all of it, but uh, from Acts 15 and then throughout the rest of Christian history, we, 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 have talked, we, we know how we look at the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we know how we, we consider the law of Moses. We know how to consider the mora- morality uh, that the Jewish community um, uh, proposed. Uh, to the Gentile world. So Paul's been running around the world making converts to this new way of being Jewish who aren't coming out of the Jewish faith. And they are coming with some really unusual behavior um, for the Jewish community. So it's creating some tension. So chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, came down to Antioch, because we left Antioch at the end of chapter 14. That's where Paul and Barnabas had returned. But some men came down from Judea. Judea is the region around Jerusalem. And were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these came down from Jerusalem, came down from from Judah, Judea. These are the really, really, really Jewish people, but they're converts to this new way of being Jewish, believing in Jesus as Messiah, they've come down to the church in Antioch because Antioch church is receiving a whole lot of Gentiles like us. And um, they're saying, unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. Well, I don't need to tell you, Paul's brain exploded over that issue. Go read Galatians. That's the letter that's written probably during this time or soon thereafter. So again, that's why the, the basic issue here is what what is necessary for salvation then you know after you talk about what's necessary for salvation you can talk about what is expedient or right for christian living so both issues get mixed in here but yeah you know how paul would respond when these people came from headquarters who knew nothing but the jewish faith then they received jesus they came down and said you can't be saved unless you're circumcised verse two and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that's a really nice way of saying their brains exploded. <laughs> after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, division and debate has always been part of the Christian community. You know, if you think otherwise, you know, I got some land I'll sell you in the land of Oz. Um, yeah, debate and dissension has always been part of the Christian community. Uh, anyway, so yeah, no small dissension and debate with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up, you always have to go up, to Jerusalem, uh, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So really go back to where it started. Go back to headquarters. Go back to the apostles. That's, at this point, that's where most of them still are. Uh, Peter and Paul are running all around the world, but most of the apostles haven't scattered that far yet. They're still in Jerusalem. Uh, the brother of Jesus, who um, the brother of Jesus, James, is the head of the church 
in Jerusalem. So for a lot of reason, it feels like headquarters. That's where it started. So when they have this debate in Antioch, they say, go down to Jerusalem, go to the apostles and the elders. The elders were those who led the house churches in Jerusalem about this question. Verse 3, so being sent out on their way by the church, they're in Antioch, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, so you can trace their steps, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. I think they were practicing their speeches uh, that they were taking to Jerusalem. They, they told everybody as they went about how they'd been converting Gentiles. And they, they told everybody that in such a way that it brought great joy to everybody they told that to, both Jewish and non-Jewish people. Um, so they're heading to Jerusalem. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, through them, for them. So they went and told them, you know, we, they say, you know, we've been on... They didn't call it their first missionary journey, but they've been on their trip at this point through what we would call um, Turkey today, um, some Syria, um, Cyprus. They've been on, on that journey, and they've been bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ that didn't start off from a Jewish perspective. Um, so they, they go and tell all the people that. Verse 5, but some believers, now these are believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up. You know, Jesus argued with the Pharisees a lot, probably because he was one. Because he certainly wasn't a Sadducee. He certainly wasn't an, an Essene. Um, so if he, and he may not wanted to, he probably really technically wasn't a part of any of the groups, but if Jesus had joined one of those early Jewish groups, it would have been the Pharisees because he did Scripture the same way they did. He viewed the law the same way they did. Um, he viewed oral tradition the same way they did. So I know because he's always fighting with the Pharisees, we just have this terrible image of Pharisees in the Christian community. You know, if you were watching Jesus fight the Pharisees and you started fighting the Pharisees, Jesus will come to the defense of the Pharisees, I promise you. Um, it's just like if you watch all the Republicans or all the Democrats debating on stage. If you're a person of the other party and you start attacking, they're going to they're side with each other. So what, what you're watching when Jesus and the Pharisees, when the Jews are debating each other in the New Testament, it is an inner family debate. Who, who do we fight with the strongest? People we know well. I don't usually get real animated and argumentative with people I pass on the streets. It's people that I live with um, in some way you define family, whether it's church family or biological family. So, you know, just be careful how you... Uh, is, is, it, I don't like Christian preaching that is anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic. You know, I hope you know, being anti-Semitic, bad thing, try not to do that. Some places where I hear anti-Semitic preaching is, you know, when, when, when you look at texts where Jesus is battling with, with his kinfolks, spiritual kinfolks, the Pharisees, and, um, you know, sometimes you just read that in a Christian context and Christians want to boo. Well, that won't make Jesus happy. These these, these, these Jews of different stripes were all part of Jesus' kin, which is why he fought with them so much, which, he had strong, which is why he had strong arguments with them. So try not to be anti-Semitic when you, when you deal with uh, the, the different Jewish groups. Uh, they all debated with each other. And if you've even just seen the movie Yentl, you know that Jews love to debate and argue. So when you're watching them do that, Go to Israel with me. You'll see some of them doing it. When you watch them do that, don't say, oh, they hate each other and they're totally opposite to each other. Well, no, they aren't. They really have a whole lot in common, but they just debate. They argue. By the way, Greece is the same way. When I hear Greeks and Greece talking to each other, I think they're arguing. But they, that's just their personality. They're passionate about stuff. So be careful when you watch inner family debates. I learned in my first church, learned the hard way. You can talk about your mama. I can't talk about your mama. 
Because if I talk about your mama, I would, it, would not end up, it would not end well for me. <laughs> so be careful when you're watching these debates in the New Testament because they are inter-family debates. Just like you're seeing right here in Acts 15. So these are Pharisees who are Christian believers. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Well, Paul's going to disagree. Um, the Pharisees that were of the school of Hillel, which was the more open-minded school of Pharisees, will disagree with these Pharisees. These are very, con very conservative Pharisees from Jerusalem. Um, so you know, they're, they're debating about what is necessary and, and, and what's not. Um, so that, that's, that's the issue. Do you have to circumcise or not? Or how much of this Jewish stuff do you have to accept? So they're going to have to figure this out. So here we are, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together, Christian conferencing, to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, you know, that feels like home to me in a lot of ways. That's the Christian community throughout history. After there has been much debate... Peter stood up. You're going to hear from Peter, you're going to hear from Paul, and you're going to hear from um, James. You're going to hear Peter, um, you're, going to hear, you're going to hear Peter defend Paul and Barnabas, and then you're going to hear James offer a solution. All this in the context of Christian counseling. The apostles were here, the elders were here, and I think there were just extraneous other Christians present. It was, it was a gathering. So, but first, first Peter stands up. After much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, again, notice these are brothers debating. They love each other. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about, remember when he went to, when he went to Caesarea, Maritima, to Cornelius' house, and it was through the preaching of Peter that the Holy Spirit fell on those Gentiles, that Roman soldier and his family and those Gentiles. So Peter's saying, yeah, I, I, I'm responsible for some of this. It was by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So you've got to go back to Acts 10 to remember that. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So Peter's saying, you know, I've seen the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles. I've seen the Holy Spirit bring Gentiles into the movement. So don't be too harsh on these Gentiles. Um, there's been a long Jewish history up to this point, and still somewhat today. There's been a Jewish history that Jews and Gentiles, now they do have difficulty. They have had difficulty. So again, you can view Jew versus Gentile differently as you view the different Jewish faiths, different Jewish ways of being Jewish, debating with each other. Paul did not fall down. Well, he actually was probably not on a horse. But Paul did not, before his Damascus Road experience, he wasn't Jewish and then became Christian. Paul would not have known what the word Christian meant. The word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament. These were just disciples, followers of Jesus, who, who, who embraced Jesus as being the Jewish Messiah, and now Gentiles are coming on board. So again, these, you know, it's, it's, you've got two ways in the ancient world of living. You've got Jewish, and this is from a Jewish perspective, obviously. You've got Jewish, and then you've got all the ways everybody else lives. That's Gentile. So they, there is a difference between Jew and Gentile. But so Peter's saying here, okay, I, I'm, I've watched God do work among the Gentiles. Holy Spirit fell on them just like the Holy Spirit fell on us. Because at Pentecost, there in Jerusalem, those are all Jews on the first Pentecost. It was there at Caesarea where you kind of have the Gentile Pentecost in Cornelius' house. But Peter's saying, I've, I've watched it happen. Uh, God is bringing these Gentiles in. He's giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Again, you got to go back to Acts 10. Remember that vision Peter received uh, about all the unclean animals? And the vision wasn't really about animals or even the kosher law. It was about Peter thinking 
all Gentiles are unclean, period. Well, God can cleanse the unclean Gentile. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does in the human heart, is can cleanse the can cleanse the human heart. Part of what it means to be born again, to come to faith in Christ, is you're given a new heart. And Peter's saying, God does that to Gentiles just like he's done does Jews. So, verse 10, Now, therefore, and this is still Peter talking, Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, he means Gentile disciples, that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Now, again, this is where Christians can read the New Testament in an anti-Semitic way. When Paul or any of the early Christians are arguing against the law of Moses or arguing against keeping the totality of the law of Moses, they're just saying that in regards to Gentiles. You're going to see Paul, he's still keeping the law. He's still doing rituals of purification. Um, he even makes Timothy get circumcised because he's Jewish, and Timothy was half Jewish. So he's, you know, the argument, Paul would have never said Jews stop keeping the law. He's just saying don't make the Gentiles do it. And actually what he just said in a very nice way is we Jews haven't kept the law well, so don't lay that yoke on the Gentiles. So again, the New Testament is not anti-law. And again, I've always said, I wish we didn't translate the word law of Moses because that goes through the Greek, and that's where it starts, and then it goes into the English. The word law, I wish we just left it as Torah, which is what the Jews call it, Torah. Because again, if you ask Jews how to, def- to translate Torah, they're not going to say law. They're going to say what Torah is just God's instruction or God's wisdom. The wisdom, the instruction of Moses. Now, again, in our culture, that feels very different from the law of Moses. You know, when the law, I grew up in kind of in a mill village and heading out in the country. And, you know, when we talked about the law, we talked about police, policemen coming after you. You know, the law is going to get after you, young man. Um, we don't feel warm about the law. So I wish we just say the Torah of Moses, the instruction of Moses, because that's the way the Jews feel about it. Well, as soon as we term it law, it starts feeling negative to us. Paul never said to Jews, quit keeping the law. He keeps keeping the law. He's Jewish. He says, go for it if you're a Jew. Don't lay that burden on Gentiles. That's that's Peter's argument. That's Paul's argument. Um, Don't lay that yoke on the neck of Gentile apostles. Um, What they're getting ready to decide, though, is how much of the Jewish law do you have to keep? Some things they're not going to let go of, and I'm glad they didn't. Verse 11. Um, Verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved through grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So again, the core discussion here is how we're saved. It's not by any of our actions. It's not by any of our deeds. It's not by our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. I hope you know that's that's paganism. Uh, Christians of all stripes say we're saved by grace, we're saved by, by embracing the work of Christ or allowing the work of Christ to embrace us. You know, our good works are not the root of salvation, they're the fruit of salvation. They, they have to do with how we live after we come to faith. But we're saved by, by faith through grace. And that's, they all agree on that. That's why they, they say that. They're, so they're settling firmly what it means to be saved. Um, Jews, by the way, are not saved by keeping the Jewish law. Um, We invite them to Christ, but what saved the Jews, even in the Old Testament era, what saved the Jews was not they did things perfect or right or well. They were saved because God chose them. God chose them and then said, live this way. By the way, that's exactly what he does to us. You get chosen in Christ, you receive Christ, you believe in Christ, and then God says, okay, now live this way. But you don't, it's not how you live that determines whether you're Jewish or Christian. Um, it might determine whether you're a good Jew or a good Christian, but it's not what determines whether you're Jewish or Christian. That's the work of God. That's you just accepting, receiving the work of God, whether it's in being chosen or being chosen through grace or being chosen through Christ. 
then you worry about how you act, how you live. Again, our behavior, our good deeds are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. Jews and Christians, and Christians of all stripes agree on that. Only time I hear otherwise is by Christian folks sitting in my pews um, who, who think it's all about your good deeds. You know, when, when you get to, and you know, when you get to the Golden Gates, Peter's going to open up a book and see how much, see if your good outweighs your bad and you know, that may be Hollywood and that may be your comic strips, but that's not Jewish or Christian theology of any stripe. Um, you're saved by grace, faith in what God does. In the Jewish perspective, is faith in that you've been chosen by God. In the Christian perspective, is faith that you've been chosen by God through the work of Christ, and you accept that. Then you, then you think about, well, how then should we live? How then should we live? So they have to talk first about how are we saved? Whether you know what, what saves a human being, you know through grace of the Lord Jesus, and He's saying just as they will. He's saying that's for us coming out of the Jewish faith to Jesus. That's for us coming out of the Christian faith to Jesus. Well, I love the next verse, and all the assembly, uh, all the assembly fell silent, and that's a good thing. I don't know how long they were silent, but they were silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul, who is going to back up Peter, because they've been living this. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders, there's our phrase again, God has done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas says, yeah, we've been going all around Asia Minor, Bithynia, Pamphylia. We've been going all around these places, inviting those Gentiles to join us on this Jesus journey. And we've seen signs and wonders. We've seen God work in their lives. We've seen God bring them in. So here you've had, you know, Paul and Barnabas come because they have to give account for what they've been doing. Peter supports them. Now James, because of his role in the Jerusalem church, this is not James as in James and John, the sons of Zebedee, um, one of those earliest disciples. This is James as in the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, shared a mother, not a father. Uh, this is one of those brothers that the New Testament tells you, those brothers of Jesus who came to believe in Jesus after the resurrection. So, of course, the Jerusalem church, after Jesus is gone, and they're looking for a head, they think, well, here's a half-brother of Jesus who is now among us, who is now a believer. So that's a logical choice. You know, my Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox friends will tell you, uh, James, the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, They'll show you that's why there's a cathedral to James of the Orthodox there in Jerusalem. And that's why they, you know, he's buried, they say, there in Jerusalem. Anyway, he's obviously leading the church in Jerusalem. So after uh, Peter and Paul and um, Barnabas speak about what God's been doing among the Gentiles, James is going to offer a solution. And after they finish speaking, James replied. Now James, nobody's going to question James' Jewish credentials. Um, anyway, he, he, now he's going to offer a solution. Brothers, notice how they keep calling each other brothers. They're family. We do argue with family. We've got to learn how to argue with family. You know, some family, when I do premarital counseling, I always talk to couples about how to have a good fight. Because the problem is not that they fight or disagree, is they don't know how to do that, and they destroy their marriage. You can have a good disagreement. You can have a good argument, and there's ways to do that, and there's certainly ways not to do that. So, yeah, we've got to learn how to do that. Anyway, so James stands up here. Brothers, listen to me. And because of who he was, they, they, they would listen to him. Simeon knows he's using the Jewish name for Peter. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Again, back to Cornelius, Caesarea, how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. wish I could get some Methodist preachers to understand this. James is speaking, and James has a lot of authority here, but they're still not going to just listen to James. He has to bring Bible to bear. So he's going to give them a text that says these Gentiles coming into faith in the Jewish Messiah 
This is the way God wanted it. This is the way God said it would be. This is in fulfillment of the scriptures. This is what the scriptures declared would happen. So at this point, and notice verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets, plural, agree. So he's kind of bringing all the prophets of the Hebrew Bible to bear. He's only going to quote one, just as it is written. And your study Bible should tell you that at this point, he's quoting the book of Amos. So this is where he finds warrant for what's happening in the book of Amos. After this, I will, I will return. This is God speaking through Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. Do you remember that? I'm sure you've heard. I don't hear it as much now as I did a few years ago. The pop Christian song, The Days of Elijah. There's a verse in that song about it also. These are the days of David. Rebuilding the temple. So part of what happened in the New Testament era was God rebuilding the house of David. God rebuilding the temple. We are the temple. The temple now is those of us in Christ, whether from Jewish or Gentile background, we're the new temple. So that's what, that's what James is saying here. He's saying, I, I read it in the book of Amos. There's going to come a time, God said, when he would rebuild the tent of David that had fallen. He would rebuild its ruins and restore it. That's what's happening right now. The temple is being restored. Not the one that is built in Jerusalem, but we are the temple. Paul declares that three times in the New Testament. We are the new temple because we are where the presence of God resides. Uh, We are where people come among us to find forgiveness. Uh, We don't offer blood sacrifices uh, in worship. We offer the blood of Christ, and we offer sacrifices of praise in worship. So he's saying this is in the Bible, people. Uh, Verse 17, that the remnant of mankind, uh, the word in my translation is mankind. The word there um, is what's mankind in in Greek. Because he, by the way, what, what James is doing here is quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was made 250 years before Jesus. But if the, the Hebrew word behind the word for mankind there uh, is Adam, Adam, that the remnant of Adam may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. So he's given them Bible, Bible evidence that there was supposed to come a time when the Gentiles would come flooding in. And, when the, and that would be God rebuilding the temple. So um, James is speaking, but he's not just sharing his opinion. He, he's offering them scripture. So, here comes James's conclusion. Therefore, my judgment, my solution, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble them by making them keep all the law of Moses. Now, particularly in the Christian faith, because it's the way we do it in all of our articles of religion, we divvy up the law of Moses, the instructions of Moses, in three ways. Ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law. We get that from Paul, by the way. Go read Galatians, which he wrote during this period. The law of Moses, there's different kinds. There's 613 laws among the law of Moses. Some are moral, some are ceremonial, how you worship and that kind of stuff, and some are civil. So we have to decide what do we do with those 613 laws. Um, James is going to bring his solution, which is now scripture. He says, we don't trouble them, uh, you know, with all the laws. Um, Verse 20, but here is what they do have to keep. This is what you've got to bring with you from the Jewish faith into the Christian faith. Most of us see four things here. It kind of looks like three, but four things. Um, But should write to them to do these things. Abstain from, and it literally says the pollution of idols. Abstain from uh, things polluted by idols. Um, whether that's food or worship or trinkets or talismans or whatever. Don't be polluted by idols. Um, I'm sure you know idolatry, bad thing. You can't have idols. Uh, And then you have to start defining what an idol is. Uh, I was reading one of John Wesley's sermons. 
which I do on a regular basis. It's a sermon he wrote entitled Spiritual Idolatry. He wrote it in 1781, gave it to the Methodist people. I commend it to you. I commend all of Wesley to you. In his, in his sermon, Spiritual Idolatry, he, um, he starts off, and there's, they, they took out all of John Wesley's illustrations when they printed his sermons. It's a different era back then. Uh, but this is almost an illustration that, got, that survived. At the beginning of that sermon, he says, when John the Apostle was an old man, there in Ephesus, because you know he's the only one that didn't die a martyr's death. He died old. When he was there in Ephesus, the old man, uh, they, and we hear this in Christian tradition, and John Wesley evidently accepted it. When, that, that when he was old, they would they would carry him into the meeting there among the Christians in Ephesus, and he would say, "Beloved, love one another." He was old, and that's all he had energy for. Well, John Wesley is a good Bible student. When you look at First John. Yeah, beloved, love one another is obviously there. But John Wesley said he, he also mustered some other words. Because also, besides beloved, love one another, you read that in 1 John. You also read in 1 John, beloved, flee from idols. So John Wesley says he envisioned the old John when he didn't have the energy to preach, but they'd carry him in. He would say those two things, beloved, actually, beloved children, love one another, beloved children, flee idolatry. Yeah, idolatry is a bad thing. And by the way, in that same sermon, I actually posted on Facebook this morning in case you want to go look it up. There's a quotation in that sermon where he defines idolatry. John Wesley defines idolatry. Anything that has your heart or anything that has part of your heart, that's that's an idol. So it's not just something carved out of silver or gold. Anything that has your heart, that's central to your life, that's the organizing principle of your life, other than God, uh, that's an idol. So yeah, this 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 is spiritual stuff here. Don't do idolatry. Flee idols. You know, Paul is going to argue in Corinth. Okay, okay, okay. Eat some meat offered to idols. You have the right to do that, but don't do it if it offends anybody, you know, a weaker Christian. But stay away from stuff connected to idolatry, whether, you know, it's, um, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my father worked till he was 91 years old. That's not funny. That was great. He worked till he was 91 years old. Uh, he kept reinventing himself after retirement, and he spent over 10 years working for Belks. And uh, everything Belks wanted to throw away, my father brought home. <laughs> that was some house to clean out. Everything. Everything that was damaged or broken or brought back that Belks couldn't resell, my father brought home. So I go, I'm home one day. Um, you know, I'm already an adult and I'm married, but I was back home visiting. Went to my bedroom, my old bedroom, which by that point had gotten filled with all this excess from Belks. I went and laid down, and I look up, and Buddha's looking at me. <laughs> I'm serious as a heart attack. I got this big ceramic Buddha. I, I just went to sleep. Next morning, I said, Dad, um, why is Buddha back there? Well, I knew the answer. Belks had thrown it away. It was a pretty ceramic Buddha. It had been cracked, so my father brought it, and there was Buddha in my bedroom. Well, I had an issue with Buddha. I did. I said, just, that's, it's feeling a little bit like idolatry to me. So, you know, but that's, that's, not the, that's not as bad as putting money or power or sex or prestige in the center of your life. Now, those are more dangerous idols than a ceramic statue of Buddha. And I'm fond of Buddha. He's said a lot of great things. But, um, yeah, I mean, so idolatry is not just a statue. Uh, but, so that's the first thing the Council of Jerusalem said. Stay away from idolatry. Anything that becomes central in your life, that becomes your prevailing passion in life other than God, you're participating in idolatry. Abstain from things polluted by idols, by the pollution of idols. Number two, from sexual immorality. Now, how are they going to find that? Well, duh, as Jews. They're going to find it as Jews. Um, Let me just hang out here for a moment. Um, if you want to, you know, again, these Jews don't have to say to each other, okay, so what do you mean by sexual immorality, James? They, they know what they mean by sexual morality. And again, part of what the Christian community has gathered from this is sexual morality is part of moral law, 
not ceremonial, not civil law. Um, so one of the best places, and there's lots of places, but one of the best places that these Jews, if you'd ask these Jews, wait a minute, stop, I'm Gentile, define sexual immorality for me. They would have said, they wouldn't use our numbers, but they would have said, go, go, go check out Leviticus 18. Go check out Leviticus 18. So let me just offer you the first 23 verses of Leviticus 18. And this is not unusual in Judaism. It's not unusual in the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, this is one of those lists in, in the Hebrew Bible where sexual immorality is defined. And most people would say, would agree with most of this. Throughout most of our history, we've agreed with about all of this. We used to almost keep a list like this in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, by the way. But anyway, Leviticus 18. Um, now I know it's Leviticus, and you probably didn't read Leviticus as you went to bed last night. But these were Jews, and when they said sexual immorality, flee from idolatry, flee from sexual immorality, this is what they thought about, stuff like this. Uh, Leviticus 18, verse 1 and following. Then the Lord, and I'm reading, by the way, out of the New Living Translation, uh, because it, your, your standard Bible says, don't uncover the nakedness of your father. Well, you have to understand what they meant by uncover the neck, because it's just repeated. Uncover the nakedness, uncover the nakedness, uncover the nakedness. Well, the New Living Translation, which I am fond of, um, after you look at this, the more traditional translations, they just say, you know, well, you'll hear how they say it. Uh, they, these are just sexual standards. Uh, Thus says the Lord to, to Moses, Say this to your people, the Israelites, I, the Lord, am your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt where you used to live, or, or like the people of Canaan, where I'm taking you, because there are lots of ways to do sexual morality and sexual immorality. If, if this was, you know, 1,200 years later, they would say, or don't do it the way the Romans and the, Jew, and the, Gen, and the Greeks are doing it. Anyway, he's, say, he's saying, God's saying to Moses, tell your people, don't do it like the Egyptians, don't do it like the Canaanites. Uh, you must not imitate their way of life. Verse 4, you must obey all my regulations and be careful to keep my laws, my instruction, for I, the Lord, am your God. If you obey my instruction and regulations, you will find life through them. I am the Lord. God didn't give these boundaries just to be a killjoy. Uh, he knew what would bring life. He didn't want them to participate and do it the way the Egyptians or the Canaanites did it. So here's his list. And most of this, I don't think most people would disagree with now. Begin at verse 6. You must never have sexual intercourse with a close relative, for I am the Lord. Do not violate your father by having sexual intercourse with your mother. She is your mother. You must never have intercourse with her. Do not have sexual intercourse with any of your father's wives, for this would violate your mother. Do not have sexual intercourse. Again, in standard translations, it keeps saying, don't uncover their nakedness. But do not have sexual intercourse with your sister or half-sister, whether she is your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether she is brought up in the same family or somewhere else. Do not have sexual intercourse with your granddaughter, whether your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter. That would violate you. Do not have sexual intercourse with the daughter of any of your father's wives. She is your half-sister. Do not have intercourse with your aunt, your father's sister, because she is your father's close relative. Do not have sexual intercourse with your aunt, your father's mother, sister or your mother's sister uh, because she is your mother's close relative. Do not violate your uncle, your father's brother, by having sexual intercourse with his wife. She also is your aunt. Do not have sexual intercourse with your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. Do not have intercourse with your brother's wife. This would violate, uh, would violate your brother. Um, you weren't expecting this this morning, were you? Uh, let me just keep, keep going. Uh, do not have sexual intercourse with both with both a woman and her daughter, or marry both a woman and her granddaughter, whether her son's daughter or a daughter's daughter, they are close relatives, and to do this would be a horrible wickedness. Do not marry a woman and, and her sister because they will be rivals. Polygamy, even though it was accepted and done, was never God's ideal. Uh, uh, but if your wife dies, then it's all right. Then it's all right, one at a time. Then it's all right to marry her sister. Do not violate a woman by having sexual intercourse with her during her period of menstrual impurity. Do not defy yourself by having sexual intercourse with your neighbor's wife. That'll get you in trouble, too. Do not give any of your children as a sacrifice 
to Moloch, the god Moloch, uh, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord, for I am the Lord. Do not practice homosexuality. It is a detestable sin. A man must never defile himself by having sexual intercourse with an animal, and a woman must never present herself to a male animal in order to have intercourse with it. It is terrible diversion. The perversion. Do not defile yourself in any of these ways, because this is how the people I am expelling from the promised land have defiled themselves. As a result, the entire land has been defiled, and he goes on. Um, you know, we love people that do all that stuff. We have family members. I hope maybe some of that more than others, but we have family members that do all that stuff. But that is, that is the way the Jewish community, the early Christian community, would have, saw, would have defined sexual immorality. Uh, those are just a list of things, uh, and I think, at least the vast, vast majority of that list, people would still hold to and say, these are the standards. Even if you find a reason you think to violate it, these are the standards. So when the early Christian community said, flee idolatry, flee sexual immorality, those Jews didn't have to say, well, let's define idolatry and sexual immorality a little more. Uh, it, was, it was clear to them. So here's, those are the two things that are clearly moral laws. The other, the next two things of these four things that the early Christian community said we have to keep. And by the way, keep reading the New Testament. Um, sexual immorality and idolatry are condemned throughout. Uh, keep reading the rest of, of the New Testament. Uh, then there's a couple things that's kind of interesting. After he talks about fleeing idols, fleeing sexual morality, here's the next two. And from what has been strangled and from blood. So, yeah, bleed your meat and don't eat or drink blood. Now, again, most of you have, you know, it's kind of strange. We probably have a much stronger desire to participate in idolatry and sexual immorality than we do in not bleeding our meat and not drinking blood. Uh, part of what James was doing here, well, there's two things, there's two things maybe going on. Um, it could be three. Um, one thing is the Hebrew Bible, the same chap chapter 17 of Leviticus is one of those famous places that says the life is in the blood. There's something almost sacred about blood. Um, you really can drink it if you want to. There are some cultures that I think I've mentioned it before. I know of some cultures that, you know, that, that put blood and milk together and make a drink. Um, when you go to England, there's blood pudding on the buffet. And there is some blood in that. Um, so, I mean, you know, but there is a repulsion in most of us, and maybe because we've been part of a Jewish-type culture um, for a long, long time now, for about 3,000 years plus. Um, so there could be, you know, the, the life is in the blood, so watch out the blood. And we do tend to bleed our meat, and we do tend not to just drink blood. Um, so, you know, there's a, a repulsion to it. James is probably saying that if you do that kind of stuff, you're not even going to be able to hang out with Jews. They may accept that you're not circumcised. They may accept that you're not keeping kosher. They may accept that you're not keeping the high holy days. But they're having a hard time. They're, going to not, they're not going to eat dinner with you. They might let you eat your pig, but they're not going to sit there and watch you drink blood. Um, so some of it is, some of this is just practical to keep a community together that's both Jewish and Gentile. Some of it may be theological understanding of blood. Um, now, St. John Chrysostom, who is an early church father, who I think, who most of us think, over-allegorized this, just said, this means don't murder. I think that's over-allegorizing it. But I can live with that. But what, however, you, however you do this, these are the four things. These are the four things that the Jewish community said, that the Jewish community of Christians in our earliest days said, okay, when the Gentiles and the, and, the, and the Jewish folks come together in Christ, these are the laws we have to absorb, observe. Flee idolatry, flee sexual immorality, and pay attention to this blood stuff. Now, we can wrap up. Verse 21 is where we're going to stop. For from ancient generations, Moses has, and this is where I, I'm saying where we're saying this thing about blood just for the sake of fellowship, because he does say next, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city, 
even in High Point, in every city, those who proclaim him, for he is read, read every he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Part of what James is saying is there's Jews everywhere you go, not just in Jerusalem, not just in Judea. So for the sake of fellowship, watch the blood stuff. You know, again, I find that pretty easy watching the blood stuff. I have no desire to drink or eat blood, and I can't even eat the steak some of you eat because I don't like seeing the runny stuff in it. Um, But I think probably that's here because of the sake of us fellowshipping, Gentile Jewish fellowship. It made more for that. So anyway, that's the, you, you see the issue. You see what, how they solved it in council or conference. You see that was James's solution. Um, well, let's look at the next verse, and we'll start here next week. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to accept this and go tell everybody else to do this. So that's what happens in the rest of chapter 15. You're going to see how they're going to disseminate this information. Because they disseminate, this is what they disseminated to the rest of the Christian community, whether they were Jewish or Gentile. This is what they disseminated, came out of the council of Jerusalem, came out of, um, came out of their Christian conferencing there. So next week we can finish up pretty quickly because you've got the meat of it right here. The rest of it is just kind of the, the, what comes about after this. So let's pray together. God, we're grateful for your word. We, we repent of the portions of your word that we have enjoyed ignoring. But Lord, help us to struggle with it. Help us to deal with it. Help us to live as both a people of grace and, and law, grace and truth. Help us to hold it together. Help us to hold our convictions, our standards but still love and show unconditional kindness to all the people that we meet so that we can build a bridge to them across which Christ can cross. God, we thank you for the way your Spirit instructs your people, the way your Spirit guides your church. And we pray, God, that as people who are always in need of reform and revival, that you would do that for us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.